God, may that prayer be true in our lives. May we surrender to your will, not ours. I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. And at this time, our elementary and preschool can be dismissed to their classes across the hall. And while they are doing that, if you will open your Bibles to Psalm 3. We have already read that this morning. Thank you, Aaron and Chad and Paul, for um, preparing us through the words of that music to, to hear what God has to say to us this morning. Psalm 3 is where we are. We are in the middle of a series on Psalms this summer. Take us through the end of August and we'll uh, hit a select few between now and the end. And uh, we look forward to spending time doing that together. I want you this morning to, to put on David's shoes as we, as we, look, at, as we look at this. Um, we need to understand what he's going through, what he's feeling, what he's thinking. Um, give this some context. At the beginning, the, the superscript says, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So we need to back up uh, just a little bit. This story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, Absalom, one of David's uh, many sons, has been over the course of many weeks, maybe even many months, secretly but successfully wooing people into his camp, into his political organization, so to speak. He's been recruiting from the ground up a, a grassroots initiative to take the kingdom from his father. And long last, he feels like he has enough backing, feels like he has the majority uh, and he gets these people to announce him as the new king. David's not a, a dummy and realizes that being outnumbered, um, his life is in danger. And so he takes uh, his faithful supporters and he flees the capital of Jerusalem. And I want you to think for just a moment what's going through his mind. I want you to identify with him. My own son has betrayed me. My country, whom I have loved and served and fought for, has betrayed me. And just for good measures, I'm leaving town. A relative of the old king is standing up on a hill, walking along beside me as I'm going through the valley, yelling curses at me and throwing rocks, as if to say goodbye and good riddance. Shortly after that, he gets word, as he's got some people still in the capital who are kind of relaying messages back and forth, that Absalom is, has been advised to send a battalion of 12,000 soldiers after him so that he doesn't escape into the wilderness. And at some point in time during that flight, maybe he's sitting on the bank of the Jordan River, facing east, which he's eventually going to cross, uh, maybe he pins these words as he's watching the sun come up. And I wonder if going through his mind, 
I wonder if this is the last time I'll see the sunrise from the promised land. You see, nowhere in Scripture do we have any promises that, or does David have any promises that, that he's going to come back, at least not that we read. Or maybe he's already crossed the Jordan River. He's on the other side, and maybe he's sitting on that eastern bank looking back west at the sun going down, wondering if he'll ever return to that place. I don't know what's happening, but at some point in time, he pins those words that Carissa read to us just a little while ago. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Psalm 3 is, is what is called a, a lament. It, and there are several in the Psalms. And there are variations and there are always exceptions to the rule. But generally, a lament includes some of this. God, my enemies are too strong or too numerous for me. And or, I am too few and too weak. And or, God, you seem to be absent. David expresses the first, Lord, how many are my adversaries? Many are rising up against me. And then his enemies express at least the third, if not the second. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. It reminds me of when uh, the king of Assyria showed up at Hezekiah's doorstep in Jerusalem um, several hundred years later and says... Don't think your God's going to save you. None of the other gods have ever saved them from us. We're going to wipe you out just like we've wiped them out. But Hezekiah thought differently, took that letter, laid it before the throne, laid it before the altar in the temple and said, God, we're in deep trouble. And if you don't save us, nobody will. And he did. So in verses 1 and 2, there is a cry to God for help. The Psalms, back up a minute, are the nation's hymn book. And you may be sitting there, I've asked you to kind of walk in David's shoes, and you may say, but I'm not in David's shoes. I'm certainly not in David's shoes. Uh, neither one of my daughters are conspiring to run me out of the house at least as far as I know. <laughs> when I walk to the mailbox every day, no neighbor is throwing rocks at me and cursing me. And nobody that I'm aware of is sending an army after me. So, how do I relate to this? But see, that's not the point. The Psalms weren't written for us to do a one-to-one -one comparison. The Psalms were written in these these explanations were written so that we can see that even in the midst of whatever anybody's going through, these are true, just like we do today. How many of you have, in the span of a, a, a very short time, lost your business to fire and had four of your daughters die in a shipwreck at sea? Anybody in here? Has that happened to anybody? And yet... I don't think I'm the only one when we sing it is well with my soul doesn't in some way identify with that song. Doesn't in some way go, 
even if you didn't know the background of that song, go, you know, good times or bad times, it, it is well with my soul because God is faithful. That's why I love to hear testimonies of people because, no, I haven't experienced what they've experienced, but it's encouraging to me. It strengthens my faith when I see God over and over and over and over again intervening in someone's life and them bringing praise to Him because of that. And that's why even if we're not running for our lives, this psalm can speak to us and should speak to us. So we don't need to forget what David's experience is, but we don't need to dismiss it because, well, my life's not that bad. The point is, when we are facing trials of any kind, we can and we should and we need to cry out to God. The lament is for the body of Christ to use when life is overwhelming. When Jesus was on the cross, did He not participate in that form of communication, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from the Psalms. When He was in the garden and asked the disciples to pray and they kept falling asleep on Him and He'd go away and say, God, if there's any other way, God wants us, tells us it's okay to cry out to Him. But there's one more thing you need to know about this situation. Is that David deserved this. Does that surprise you? Several chapters earlier in Samuel, David uh, has an episode with Bathsheba and then murders her husband Uriah. And God told him that evil would not depart from his house. There will be consequences. And so I wonder when David is, is leaving town with his head down, his neighbors cursing him, his son abandoning him, his nation forsaking him, if he's not thinking, <laughs> I had it coming. I really did deserve this. But notice that David doesn't allow himself to take that spiral and continue downward. He doesn't rest in self-pity. He doesn't rest in bitterness. He moves on. And that's because, if we read carefully, Psalm 51, the continued story of Nathan coming to David and, and confronting him, that David has asked for forgiveness and received it. But as we've said before, keep in mind that Having forgiveness and experiencing the consequences of our sin are two different things. Sin has a way of coming back and getting us. Sin has a way of showing up many years later. You cannot escape the consequences of sin. And David is reaping what he sowed now, but because he knows that he has been forgiven, he can go on, and he does what he does and what keeps him from becoming a, a mess of self-pity, what keeps his mind together is he remembers 
Throughout Scripture, God calls His people to remember what He's done and who He is. And David does that. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He's thinking, my enemies have increased and they've, they're all around, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I remember all those times in the past when you saved me from things that I shouldn't have been saved from. All the way back to when he was a shepherd fighting lions and bears to who we talked about a couple of months ago, Goliath. God, you are a shield about me. I remember that you are my physical protection. Not a bad thing to remember when you're running for your life. But it's not just that he's his physical protection. The second half of verse 3, you're my glory and the one who lifts my head. I don't doubt that David is leaving town with his head down, frustrated, sad, depressed, angry, confused, uh, and then also dodging rocks. But he says, God, you're my glory. In other words, if I never return to Jerusalem, if I never put the crown back on my head, if I never sit on the throne, if I never rule this people again, God, you're still my glory. I'm not depending upon my position or my power or my prestige to bring me honor in front of anybody. God, you are my glory. And, and we, as his children, need to remember that. God is our glory, not what we do, not our position, not where we are, not what we have. God is our glory. And then, like when your child comes to you and they're sad, or maybe they're crying and their head's down, and, and you take your finger and you raise their chin. And you look in their eyes and say, it's going to be okay. God is the lifter of our heads. God is the one who comes alongside us with that word of encouragement and says, I'm here. It may not seem like it. I realize, David, you're running for your life, but I am still God. And even if this is, in a sense, prophesied, evil's not going to leave your house. It's going to come from within your own house. It's okay. I'm still God. But it's not just that David remembers that God is his physical deliverance or his emotional support. David remembers when he has called to God and God has responded. See, he's not absent. He's not silent. I was crying to the Lord, and that could be read, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and He answered me from His holy mountain. In the past, when things haven't been going well, I have called to God, and He has been there. He has been faithful. He has provided answers to my pleas. And David remembers that. And so my question for you this morning is, do you remember what God has done? Do you follow the numerous examples and commands to spend time, especially when things aren't going well, thinking about what God has done specifically for you? Do you remind yourself, do you remind your spouse, do you remind your kids, do you remind your friends 
that God is faithful. I don't know about you, but I need that. I love to hear testimonies. I love to hear people tell stories of what God has done. It is encouraging to my soul. And you have an opportunity to dispense grace to people, to dispense encouragement to people by reminding them of what God has done for you. It jogs our memory. Oh, yeah, God's done things for me too. You get to participate in that. But you know what? You can't remind people if you don't remember. And you won't remember if you're not paying attention. Every day we have an opportunity to open up our eyes and and look at the world and see what God is up to. But if we're too busy, if we're too absorbed with ourselves, if we're not paying attention, we'll miss opportunities to see God respond. Uh, a guy named Richard Rison, who wrote a book called Piety and Philosophy, um, says these words. Paying attention to the world around us, being interested, is a form of gratitude for what God is and does. Not to be interested is a form of sacrilege. It is, in effect, to say, I realize that life and the universe are your handiwork, the expression of your power, your wisdom, your genius, your love, but I really don't care. Are we spending time aware that God is in the midst of our lives? And then, like the people of old, they wrote it down. They recorded it for their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. Are you positioning yourself to leave that kind of a legacy if the Lord tarries for your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids the testimony of what God has done in your life. And then in verse 5, he gives us one concrete example. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Um, When you're running for your life, when you've got people after you, you know, the last thing that you might do is lay down and sleep. If you can sleep, if you're not laying awake at night from worry and fear. And yet David says, despite all this that's going on, I lay down and slept. And then the morning came because, God, you sustained me. Wouldn't it be nice if every morning our first thought was on God? Thankfulness for Opening our eyes again. Wouldn't it, for me, I think, wouldn't it change the focus of my day if I began with thankfulness for the fact that that, that first part of that day, right, the, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, considered the day to begin when the sun went down. In other words, the first 12 hours of their day, they were asleep. God, it's up to you to get this day going, not me. But our day starts when the alarm goes off, right? Our day starts in the morning, and and so it's up to us. I lay down and slept, and I awoke because you sustained me. And that sets a a different tone for the day. It's, It's not up to us. We can't make or break our day. We can depend upon Him. 
so he has cried out to God. He has remembered. And then he exercises trust, beginning in verse 6. And it starts, like we talked about last week, up here. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me roundabout. Because of what I've remembered, because that I have reminded myself that God has been faithful over and over and over and over again, I'm not going to let this worry me. And it's not that David is, is does the fry, let go and let God, okay, whatever. David has always been one to take steps of faith, but they were actual steps, right? He didn't just go out and expect Goliath to fall over. He went to the creek and got five stones, right? It's not like he just is going to sit at the throne and see if Absalom comes and cuts his head off. He's leaving, but he's taken some people with him, people who can wield a sword, and he's making plans. He's left people in the capital. He's established a communication system with what's going on in the capital. He's not a dummy. But he says, God, it's really up to you. And I'm not going to be afraid because I know that you are ultimately in control. And then next he prays what I call a prayer of confidence. Remember in verse 1, my enemies are rising against me and they say there is no deliverance or that word could also be there is no salvation in God. Notice what he says in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me. He is, taking, he is taking what's happening in his life and asking God to turn that on its head, to reverse his fortunes. He's saying, can we turn this thing around, God? And then there's that great prayer, which I'm sure you all play on a regular basis. I think it's more of a, a request instead of the NASB translated as kind of past tense. Um, you can also translate that, uh, smite my enemies on the cheek and shatter the teeth of the wicked. Right? You all pray that prayer on a regular basis, right? What do we do with that? Um, well, first of all, it is poetry. Um, second of all, when you slap or strike someone on the cheek, you are bringing them shame and dishonor. You see, his enemies have risen above him and said, we're important, more important than you. Right? They're boasting. They're bragging. And, and David, in a sense, is saying, can you turn this upside down, God? Can you bring them low? Can you shame them? And then to shatter an enemy's teeth is really just a figure of speech for taking away their power. A wild beast is rendered unable to devour its prey if you break their teeth. There's an example of that in, in Job 29. He's talking about how he's always cared for those who can't care for themselves. One of the ways is by removing the teeth of the powerful so they can't devour their prey. Job's not really a dentist. He's not pulling teeth out. But he's defending those who can't defend themselves. And that's what David's asking. Would you make my enemies powerless? Would you bring them to shame? It's a prayer of confidence. God, would you reverse the situation that I'm in? Because, the beginning of verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Make no mistake, David is ultimately and completely depending upon God to remedy this situation. 
but he does pray for it. God, would you change things? And then he ends in what I think is a bizarre way. There is a, a benediction. Your blessing be upon your people. Who are God's people? They're the, the Israelites. They're that nation that has just decided that they're going to side with Absalom instead of David. They're that whole host of people who are part and parcel with David leaving town in shame and humiliation. And David says, God, may your blessing rest on them. Now, how could he say that? How could he choose, and it is a choice, how could he choose to ask God to bless the people who are kicking him out of town? David has a track record with God. David knows God, and David knows God's heart. David is familiar with the rest of the story. You see, I believe David knows the story of when the Israelites on Mount Sinai, when Moses was on the mountain, decided to make a golden calf, and God says, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses said, wait a minute, <laughs> don't do that. And I think God was waiting for Moses to do that, and said, all right. So they're your people, God. You love them. You care for them. Read through the book of Jeremiah sometimes. So many wicked, horrible things that they have done. And God said, please, please return to me. Throughout the book, throughout the history of the nation, God has pursued his people. And David knows that very well. He knows God's heart. And so even in the midst of those people running him out of town, David can pronounce a blessing or ask God to pronounce a blessing on the people because it's the right thing to do. Not unlike what our Savior did when He was on the cross. The nation having rejected Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cry of God's people should always be selfless and not selfish. Are we concerned, like Paul was, despite all of those trials and hardships and frustrations and pain and suffering, that he went through that we read this morning in 2 Corinthians 11. But apart from that external stuff, you know what concerns me? How the churches are doing. How God's people are doing. I'm worried and concerned about them because there are people who would seek to lead them astray. There are people who are caught in their own sin. That's what concerns me, not how many blows I have on my back, how many bumps I've got on my head how cold or hungry or hot I happen to be, God's people. That's what concerns me. And so as we hopefully walk in David's shoes a little bit, 
My challenge for you this morning would be what concerns you. And if it's not God's people, it's not His church, it's not ultimately His glory as He uses His people to bring Him glory, my challenge is, will you spend time remembering what God has done in your life? Will you spend time going back and thinking, how good has God been to me over the course of the last days and weeks and months and years? Spend time with Him, getting to know Him, getting to know His heart. And as you get to know Him, you will learn that His concern is for His people and He will begin to change you. And you will find that slowly over time as you seek Him, His concern for His people will become your concern for His people. So in the midst of the trials of life, which don't have to be David's trials. It could be that there's 15 loads of laundry that need to be done. It could be that you have a son who is turned against you or anything in between. It's okay to cry out to God. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that crying out, remember what He has done for you. And then make a conscious decision to place your trust in His deliverance, in His salvation. It may or may not change the issue. Again, David had no guarantees that he was going to ever return to Jerusalem. But God, I'm going to trust you anyway. Like the three guys that Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to throw you in the furnace if you don't bow down to me. He said, well, that's okay. We may perish, but we're not going to bow down to you. We trust God. And then, develop a love for His people. Because it brings Him great joy when we care for the things that He cares for. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank You for Your abundant blessings to us. God, we thank You that You are faithful, that You can be depended upon. God, help us in the midst of the daily frustrations and trials and struggles to set our mind on you, not on the things on this earth. For you have died, and our lives are hidden with you in Christ. God, help us to remember that each day. We ask these things in Christ's name.